Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. We aim to be a trustworthy source of medical information for Catholics and everyone else as the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association. And its members, like Andrew and I, are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. And it should be noted that the views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent the views of your co-hosts or the CMA, especially with some people like this guy we're interviewing today, a good friend of ours, so I'm just poking fun at him. Yeah, our friend Dr. <laughs> Steve White, who we actually interviewed in late September in person in Dallas at our annual meeting. Uh, he's the chairman of the Catholic Medical Association Healthcare Policy Committee, and he's going to give an update on the latest efforts of CMA physicians to work with national legislators to improve the government's role in health care so that we can promote a true culture of life. This guy has done so much for the Catholic Medical Association and really helped us to, to interact with the government to affect change for the good. And if you haven't noticed, he and Andrew have a mutual admiration society thing going on. <laughs> Well, we will have fun hearing from him, but first, let's look at some recent medical news. So I chose an article <coughs> from the uh, September 26, 2018 edition of the British Medical Journal. And it's funny that this was in the British Medical Journal because it's about something going on in the United States, and that is, is there a relationship between the, the ranking of the medical school that your physician attended and the quality of care that physician renders. Well, you would just assume, you know, the, the Harvard or Yale-educated physician. You don't know anybody who went to Yale, do you, Tom? Oh, or Mayo Clinic. Or no, Mayo Clinic. I know someone who went to Mayo <laughs> and to Yale. Or to the from the lowly Michigan State, you know, where I went. You know, it's, it's interesting because you would just assume that it's a higher-quality education. You're starting with higher-quality folks because they scored better on tests. And they should have better outcomes, right? And everybody knows that better test takers make better doctors, right? <laughs> I don't know that. But somebody thinks that. So anyway, what they did is they looked at the U.S. News and World Report rankings of medical school and compared it to how long people lived or didn't when they were admitted to the hospital and taken care of by such a, a physician. So what they basically did is they took 20% of all Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries that's 20%, who were admitted emergently to a hospital and then treated by a general internist. And so this was basically 1 million patients they looked at, not a small sample size. And the main outcomes they looked at were how many people were still alive 30 days later or how many had died, how many of those patients, once they were discharged, had to go back into the hospital again a month later, and how much money they spent in Medicare Part B. That's typically outpatient cost. How, now, how big of a difference do they notice? Well, the difference in mortality rate in the percentage of patients dying, there was none. Wow. The difference in being readmitted was those who graduated from one of the top 10% of med schools in the ranking compared to those who had graduated from one of the bottom half of the rankings, there is a 1 in 250 difference. So it means that if the, the doctor who went to the higher-ranked medical school admitted 250 patients, well, then the person who graduated from the lower-half medical school readmitted 251 patients. So not a, a significant difference. So that's less than a half of a percent difference. That's 0.4% difference. There was a difference. The Higher-ranked med school doctors uh, spent 3.4% less on their patients. So, in other words, not a highly significant difference. So, in other words, the medical school your physician went to really doesn't have a lot of bearing on the quality of medical care that they provide. Do you, do you think it would be the, a fair assessment, or I guess the way this strikes me is that really all doctors do most everything very similarly. Maybe the higher the higher medical schools facilitated some, some finer points. I don't know if, if that would be a fair I, assumption. I, I actually don't think it is because in an article of commentary on this, 
someone pointed out what I think is the best rejoinder. The, the care that I render to patients bears very little resemblance to what I got in medical school. Because in medical school, you're doing a lot of basic science. Uh, you're dissecting cadavers. You're watching people for the first time. But you're doing very little patient care yourself. When you really develop those habits is in your residency training, your specialty training. Mm. That would be where I think you would look to see is there a, a stronger relationship. There, I think you, you would be more likely to find one. I don't know that you would be guaranteed to find one. Well, this, this reminds me of a, another article that I read recently looking at hospitals mm -hmm. and the, the mortality rate between hospitals that are accredited by the fancy-dancy governmental organizations and those that are not accredited or even rural hospitals. And the thing that they found was that hospital accreditation had zero bearing on how patients did. So despite all the extra money and red tape and bureaucrats and inspections and all the hoops you got to jump through for these fancy accreditations, I can't even think how much of our national debt that is. It makes no difference on the lives of patients. Probably several small um, African and European countries' <laughs> GDPs are in how much money is spent on those. No I kidding. remember being in hospitals that have gone through those accreditations, and it's so much time, and it's mostly paperwork, and it rarely ever intersects with the actual care a patient is getting. Well, and I, I'm always seeing folks, too, oh, we've got our inspection coming up. We've got to go through this really onerous process for the next two weeks until the inspectors come, and then we'll go back to the normal way of doing things. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I know? think that's, I saw it in the military. I saw it outside the military when I was in the Army. It's true. Uh, so uh, don't worry about what medical school your doctor graduated from. That really doesn't have much of any bearing on how they're treating you. Man, that's a good article, Tom. Thank you. And one one point for the Michigan State guys, right? Oh, absolutely. So, Andrew, let's get to the bottom of things now, shall we? See, that's usually what I say for my colonoscopy patients. However, <laughs> today it will be regarding a new pediatric recommendation about spanking. So the recommended daily allowance? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't see the, the normal serving size. It probably depends. <laughs> if you ask my parents, it might be different for each sibling. But, uh, you know, I was I was struck by this because spanking is something that, is controversial in the world we live in today. Um, and I say it that way because it hasn't always been controversial. Many people will quote even the Bible, spare the rod, spoil the child. And uh, I, I know a lot of good people who are on both sides of this question. But the top pediatric association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, which, you know, they aren't always in line with the, the best recommendations, but they are the national resource, they've come out hard against spanking and they've based it on on a few things they've sent out uh, basically a questionnaire to physicians pediatricians throughout the country and said you know in a variety of different ways do you like spanking do you think it is good and the vast majority of them said they do not like spanking and they do not think it is good um, they've also looked at some psychological studies that show and and one of the things they point to is that adolescents, kids in their, you know, late single digits and teen years, basically they, the kids that are spanked uh, have more physical aggression than the kids who were not spanked. But uh, was that cause or effect? Right. You know, this <laughs> is a chicken and egg question, and I, I kind of feel sometimes like they'll bring the evidence with you just to make sure that they, they <laughs> get what they need. You know, so I, I feel like these guys started with the position um, – that spanking is bad, and they're working their way back to figure out why it's bad. So that's that's my take. But, you know, spanking is very controversial because it's not something that's black and white. What is a spanking? What is one spanking versus getting spanked, multiple spankings? Is it the use of a hand? Is it use of a belt? Is it done in anger? Is it done with prudence? What ages are appropriate, you know? What happens when the kid gets bigger than you? These are all <laughs> these are all questions that every parent struggles with. But I feel like there a lot of a lot of our listeners were, are probably very cautious to bring this up to their healthcare providers because uh, they don't want to get CPS called on them. You know, and CPS. If you, 
child protective services might be something different uh, in different states. But, you know, a lot of times you feel like you're on display, especially folks with kids as kids become less common in our country. The fertility rate falls. I I feel like I'm an exhibit at the zoo sometimes when I'm just (laughs) taking my kids through the grocery store. Uh, which you are. <laughs> my wife makes it look so much Smiling easier wave. than I do. But uh, you're already on display, and so I think so many people are afraid to talk about it. Tom, what do you think about spanking? What do I think? I think that in certain circumstances it's appropriate. I think you made a great point. Uh, don't do it in anger because it will probably destroy any beneficial effect it could have. And it's not for every child. I mean, some children, that's not the thing that will motivate them or not the thing that will help them realize that they did something wrong. But there need to be different consequences at different ages for different children. And uh, I often wonder how much and how well these people putting out the recommendations have raised their own children. Yeah, I wonder if any of them have kids because I I know they don't like the idea of people having big families as general rules. I mean, the, the thing that strikes me is kids need to be formed. You need to educate them on the good and help to lead them. There is a time, most certainly, when spanking is ineffective. It's hard to pick an accurate age, but I would say by the time you get to like six or seven, the chances of it being extremely effective go way down. Correct. There is a time when you can't put the kid in time out. I'm thinking of a nine-month-old baby who's nursing and finally got his first tooth and it bites its mom. You can't put that baby in timeout. What, I'm not going to feed you anymore? Now you get the bottle because you bit me. <laughs> there are some some kids that you cannot reason with. So a common thing that I, I've seen people do very successfully is they might kind of give an ex- exclamation, hey, don't do that. And they might swat them on the hand. And the kids learn very quickly, ooh, mom does not like that. I will not do that. And we can go on nursing happily. There's not a lot more rationale for the next several months And even years, it's hard to explain to a 15-month-old when you say, don't touch that electrical outlet. Stop putting that butter knife in there. (laughs) I I might get in real trouble. And you say no, and they shoot you a little side-eye smile, and they go back and do it again. And, okay, I'm going to put you in timeout. And there's, there's zero understanding there whatsoever. And so I think there is most certainly a role for spanking. It's hard to say that, though, because you know some people are going to take it to extremes. So it's something that's got to be done very prudentially, very much out of love. And I I like to think of it something as being reserved for danger or really too immediate problems. And I think that kids very quickly transition to a time where timeouts are much more effective and less work for mom and dad, by the way, than (laughs) spankings. And so I think a timeout-led approach for discipline for children and a positive reward system, which they also recommend, is a very good thing. But there's a time for spanking. I'm, I was surprised and a little bit disappointed from the AFP coming out so strongly against it because there's a lot of good folks I know. I was raised that way. Most people I know were raised that way. I think you could make an argument that generations of adolescents 20 years ago are doing better than generations of adolescents today in behavior. So I am not ready to throw that baby out with the bathwater. But For what it's worth, the AAFP is completely against it. So we'd love to hear actually what our listeners think about this issue. So if you guys would be so kind, I'd love to hear either personal kind of opinions on this or also stories where you might have thought that spanking was the best way to go about it and it wasn't, or you found that there was something else you tried and it actually didn't work. So we would love to hear some listener stories and hopefully we can... uh, we can continue to find the prudential road down the middle. Uh, it, it is said that virtue is the mean between two vices, and I think that moderation is, is probably the, the key here. Well, thank you for that discussion, Andrew. I think it's something that's not spoken out loud much, and I think you're absolutely right about moderation with that. Well, before we go to the break, I'll pose a medical trivia question. It may be something you've thought about or noticed and wondered about. So my question is, what do these three things have in common? They are the staff of Moses, that is the the one with the snake around it, the bronze snake, uh, the staff of Aesculapius, and the Caduceus. What do these three things have in common? The staff of Moses with the bronze serpent, the staff of Aesculapius, 
and the caduceus. And then for bonus points, name a national organization that uses each of them in its logo. Please take time to Google this before we come back. <laughs> Thanks, with, Andrew. With the- <laughs> you have two minutes during the break, but don't miss what comes after it. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio. And welcome to the second segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor. We are privileged to be speaking from Dallas, Texas, in person with Dr. Steve White of Daytona Beach, Florida, who has practiced solo pulmonary and critical care for 34 years now. He's a past president of the Catholic Medical Association, and he's the founding and current chairman of the Healthcare Policy Committee of the Catholic Medical Association. Dr. Steve White, thanks for being with Dr. Doctor today. Thank you so much, Tom and Andrew. We'll start off with a big question. Is there any hope that there will be meaningful health care reform, or should we get used to the Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare, as the new normal? Absolutely not the norm, and absolutely have hope. Can you elaborate? I can. It's a long history. We didn't get here overnight, and we're not going to get out of here overnight. Historically, the first proposal in this country for what we would refer to as a socialized system or a system that would be run by the federal government was in the era of Teddy Roosevelt. This is way before Medicare. Way before Medicare. And it came out of Europe. You know, the Germans and others were doing this already. And, you know, socialism was a a popular uh, idea at the time, and there were socialists in this country. And quite frankly, I don't judge people's um, intent. Uh, I want everybody to be covered, too. I just want them to be covered in a different way. But no, politically, this has been uh, a century in the working. They have incrementally positioned themselves with many failures. These are very, these people persevere. They believe that this is the right way to go about doing this. So they have incrementally implemented the plan for the government to take control of healthcare, maybe for the best of reasons. However, we know that fundamentally, we know it's wrong because it contradicts the Catholic social teaching and moral teaching. So even if I was uncertain about the, the, the policies and procedures that the government are doing, I know it's wrong because fundamentally, in the same fashion that I know contraception is wrong, it contradicts the teaching of the church. A socialized system with government control is contradictory to the social teachings of the church. Now, Steve, that's, that's really interesting that you say that because I think I appreciate where you're coming from, but I know I've had many conversations with listeners that say, as Catholics, we're supposed to be compassionate, we're supposed to care for the people who don't have health insurance. If the government can give them health insurance, isn't that a Catholic point of view? Uh, how, how do you see that in conflict with Catholic social teaching? Excellent question. Uh, but a question that's actually uh, framed from an incorrect premise, and that is that I'm not compassionate and that I don't want to take care of the poor. I do but it can't be done this way. And there's accumulating evidence. Uh, if anybody on this, um, anybody listening to this wants to know about how Medicaid treats the poor, read a very small brochure by Avic Roy, R-O-Y, how Medicaid hurts the poor. It's basic, it's evidence-based. He goes through the Medicaid system and uses specific examples, statistical analysis, uh, to show all of us why Medicaid fails the poor. So yes, I want to take care of the poor, but there are many different ways to do that. I, I, want, to get the, I want to get my Medicaid patients that I'm seeing now for free because I had to drop out of the Medicaid system in my state because it costs me more to do the billing than I ever receive. Holy cow. Um, yeah. So I want to get them into the market. I want them to be eligible to buy the same insurance I have, get the same doctors I have. Medicaid is, is the worst way we can take care of the poor and those that are disadvantaged through no fault of their own. One other thing people need to know about the Affordable Care Act, a huge percentage of the increase in those people who are insured were in the expansion of Medicaid. This is a fact that's not known well. That hurt those that need the Medicaid the most because in states that accepted the Medicaid expansion, they are being paid more by the federal government to enroll the expanded people who are what, up to something three or 400% because they're being paid more for them. And then they have to close out because they can't provide, they have no more funds, they can't actually get the Medicaid coverage for the, the women with single children or the disabled, the people who need it most. So they've hurt the poor by expanding Medicaid. 
Well, and you mentioned how Medicaid hurts the poor. One of the things that I've even seen in my practice is how people really do feel that their dignity, their self-worth is undermined by this new perception of relying on the government for something before. I'm, I'm talking about families with two incomes, mom and dad both go to work. They used to have health insurance through their job, which is now no longer affordable. And now it's something that the government's giving you and you are more or less owned by the government. I've had patients in my office in tears because they said, I've never thought of myself as a Medicaid patient. Am I supposed to sell my car or something? You know, and I said, no, unfortunately, this has been, you know, it seems to be a tactical strategy to even get more people on this entitlement because now if the government's got something they have given to you for free, now they get to control it. Whereas in the past, patients got to choose their doctor and we're not seeing that happen anymore. I, I really can't say anything in comment to that other than I agree completely. Let me go back to the principles of social justice, though, because, again, how are we making decisions in the Catholic Medical Association about what reform proposals we should make? We're making those not just because we believe ideologically you know, that the government should be out of this and, and, and we should find new ways. We're basing it on fundamental principles like solidarity, subsidiarity, the dignity of the human person. What you described about the couple who now is in the Medicaid role that, that doesn't uphold the dignity of the human person to say, well, we'll just take care of you. You have no responsibility, and it's, it's terrible care, and they feel embarrassed. I mean, to uphold the dignity of the human person, they should have the same options to get into the free market, to take responsibility, to go see the physicians that they want to choose, and now we have to go see physicians that we, we, we know are um, also uh, upholding the, uh, the moral principles of the church. We respect the dignity of the human person by doing that, and, and just briefly, because subsidiarity is a complex topic, to discuss. Subsidiarity says you go to the lowest level to make these decisions. How is it that the state should make the decision and the family is just told what to do? No, the family should make, be making the decisions. The state should be the supporting those in need who through no fault of their own, and that's directly from Pachamanteras about health care. By who throw, Pope John Twenty-Third, Who through no fault of their own cannot provide for themselves. We could provide for all of them, I suspect. You know, don't, don't think that I understand the finances of this, but I suspect for those people who are in need through no fault of their own, if we actually did this, the church could take care of them all. And uh, probably for less money. It sounds like what these two policy wonks I'm sitting next to today are saying is that the way the government looks at patients is in terms of money, materialism and function, but not as a whole human person. And I think that's where this, this falls apart. What are you doing as a healthcare policy committee and CMA member to help forward authentic healthcare reform? So when I went in to give you a little history of this, in 1995, which was the first year I'd gone to the CMA, which was the NFCPT at the time, I was very concerned about what the Clintons were doing because I didn't really know all of this history, but I'd been in solo private practice for about, let's see, 84, about 10 years, and I already saw how the, the, the Medicare and Medicaid were working. I got a check for a penny once from Medicaid. I had to go to my secretary and say, well, you know, how much did we bill them for? You got a penny, how much did I spend just to, you know, I, I realized there was something wrong, and then here Hillary comes in, and, and I really got interested in this. I said, is this going to be government-controlled medicine? Well, yes, actually it is. So, so I went to the CMA initially looking for a Catholic perspective on this because I'd read uh, just a short white paper, a two-page white paper by Bill White from Chicago. And he just, he just undid, you know, using Catholic principles, you know, the idea that the government would take control. So I knew I wanted to be in this organization for that reason initially. Once you get into this organization back in those days, though, they put you to work because, what, we were down, Tom, to 200 members at the time. So um, that's how I got launched into this. Well, I can't even remember what year we actually formulated the committee, but, I mean, we've been working on this since that time. Bill White and I had conversations, we, and I had to learn the ropes. I was not a politico. I'd never talked to a, a representative of mine in politics in my life, but here I am thrown into this. Here we are 25 years later. Yeah, I'm the only guy that's available, so they make me chair of the Healthcare Policy Committee, and I go to work making relationships, reading about politics, reading about this, reading about that, going to Washington, going wherever, meeting health policy people who are experts. One thing I should say that the CMA has done, and I think, you know, it's very important for us to understand this, 
doctors aren't going to make these decisions and formulate these policies on their own. The, the task force that we put together back in 2002 to 2004 and then documented and then produced the document Healthcare in America, a Catholic proposal for reform, which everyone that's listening to this should read. Just Google that. It's outstanding. We'll, we'll have a link on our website with that information. As Very well. important. We, we, utilized, we utilized lawyers, bishops, um, uh, social justice scholars. Father John Miller was a mentor of mine in social justice. Um, healthcare policy analysts. You know, there are people in Washington on our side who understand how this should be formulated from a legislative standpoint, how we can propose these things. And we're making tremendous inroads. In fact, at this meeting, we're going to hear uh, from former Senator Rick Santorum, and he's going to address a number of issues, but I happen to know, because we had a personal conversation in this light, that he's going to discuss a new proposal that's being worked on right now as we speak called the Healthcare Choices Proposal. It's a consortium of conservative healthcare policy analysts, top-notch people at Heritage, Galen, AEI, et cetera. They've come up with a proposal so that after this election cycle, we come in next year, we're going to be part of that proposal so that we can go to Washington and say, look, we're not going to repeal and replace, but we're going to be begin to implement changes again, as the other side did, incrementally to undo the position that we're in. Because we had, had the election turned out differently, I might be looking for other work. Yeah, it's, it's scary to think about. And, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate hearing about from you, and actually I'm very proud of all the work that the CMA's done largely through your work, is, you know, getting a seat at the table. It's, it's one of those things they say if you're, if you're not at the table, then you're going to end up being on the menu. And so t tell me some of the experiences that you've had as the CMA's gotten to help influence these national policies. Well, and my work um, has been primarily at the national level. Um, I haven't done a lot in the state, but one of the things that we did by setting up state directors is try to identify people like Diane Gowski in Florida, Robin uh, Goldsmith in Wisconsin, people actually who already had that skill set and were doing it. Some of them were doing it in the secular organizations, for example, in the FMA, uh, in Diane's case. We, we brought them in and let them go to work at the state level because we have now established our name, if you will, in Washington uh, with the people that, that we have been dealing with literally, well, Grace Marie Turner, I've worked since that original document 15 years ago. And through the, the relationships that we formed there, we were actually invited to the White House wow. this year because we had had some conversations about conscience protection and religious liberty, which you know the Trump administration is very interested in and are supportive of our views on that. But because of that, those relationships that were formed in the White House over conscience protection and religious liberty, when President Trump and his wife established the national coalition to deal with the opioid crisis in this country, they reached out to us and asked us to become partners in that coalition. So we're finally becoming culturally relevant in the Catholic Medical Association. Thanks be to God. It's time to take a break, but we'll be back with more of Steve White and Healthcare Policy on Dr. Doctor from Redeemer Radio. back with Dr. Steve White, who is the chairman of the Healthcare Policy Committee for the Catholic Medical Association. And for those of you listening, you probably want to know how might this apply to you? And that's a great question. So I'm going to ask Steve, two topics that seem intertwined right now are conscience rights and religious freedom rights for physicians. But how does this really impact the physician-patient relationship? so important because I can tell you personally that the only reason, I told you this earlier why I got involved in this, the only reason I'm doing the work that I'm involved with in the CMA is because I consider the doctor-patient relationship a sacred covenant established by the Lord. And in the scriptures you read it in the Good Samaritan. So that's my motivation. If, if I didn't think that what was happening with the federal government and the insurance industry taking over all financing and control of healthcare, had an, if I didn't believe that had an adverse impact on my relationship with my patients, I wouldn't be doing this. If it enhanced it, I'd be an advocate. <laughs> I can tell you, and I'm sure you have the same experience, and I would say we can talk to our patients, they'll tell you the same thing. This intrusion of third parties, which has been very subtle, 
maybe unintentional. Again, I'm not even impugning the intentions of those who are doing this. Maybe they really do want to help. But as a physician at the bedside with my patient, when I have to take into consideration the mandate of an insurance company or the penalty that I am, you know, having to consider because I don't participate in all of the Medicare, this or that, regulatory, whatever, that intrusion is interfering with the relationship. And it isn't only on the doctor's side. I have complaints from patients all the time about this or that. I ordered a test. They went to get the test. They get a note. They have to pay for the entire test because it's medically unnecessary. Whoa, you think that doesn't get my blood pressure up? I trained what, 15, 16 years? I've been in practice 34 years, and, it, and, it, and a, an insurance bureaucrat is telling them that a test that I ordered is medically unnecessary, so now they have to pay for it? Two consequences of that, financial, medical. They're out the cost of the test. They didn't get the test that I know is needed. I gotta back up and say, okay, how am I gonna treat this patient? I can't get the test paid for. So all, all, everything that we talk about and so much more that we can't possibly do in this time frame, is adversely affecting the doctor-patient relationship and it's the third party intrusion into that relationship that's so significant. You describe that beautifully. How do you think that the specific issue of conscience rights for physicians impacts the physician-patient relationship? Because there are those out there who say that patients should get whatever he or she wants from the physician they see. So I think there are two impacts from that. First of all, on those who share our moral ethical beliefs, okay? If we were to find ourselves in a time, and I believe if the election had turned out differently, we would be in that time now, if patients who share our moral ethical beliefs don't have physicians to go to that share their beliefs, they are going to be in, in, in a very bad way, okay? Uh, just leave it at that. On the flip side of that, okay, if you happen not to believe in, in the same things that we believe in, then you're going to come in and you're going to expect and we're going to be required as physicians to provide you whatever you want that's legal and the insurance pays for. That is not a good position to put a physician in. So you're, really the choice without conscience protection is either you have a physician who doesn't understand where you're coming from, they don't respect you, or the physician who is trying to live out what we believe is a vocation, they're going to be forced into a different line of work. And that's exactly what, you know, I, I think he's a Ph.D. Emmanuel. Um, Rahm Emanuel's brother said if if you do not want to go along with the standard of medical care such as abortion you need to get out of the practice of medicine that was in the New England Journal of Medicine yeah let me let me let me frame it in another way too um, let me say this let me take a neutral position let's take the morals and the ethics out of it let's just take freedom and choice okay nobody objects to freedom and choice with the third-party system of financing today, they control decision-making. And I don't think there's a physician or a patient in this country right now that doesn't recognize that. What is wrong with creating a system that would be in complete conformity with Catholic social teaching, okay, that provides independent ownership of your insurance, since you are paying for it, and you go to the doctor and you make the choice for your legal procedure, whether we agree with that or not. You may not come to me, but you can go to another physician who can provide that, and it's legal, and you make the decision with your money. Because, you know, the one who controls the purse strings is the one who makes the decisions. I think even those that we don't agree with and would not agree with us on moral ethical issues would agree that freedom and choice and individual ownership is a very good thing, and we're light years away from that. We want to get back to that so everyone even those who we may disagree with can go to the doctor of their choice, receive the treatment of their choice, and we go with that. And we just did a recent interview on that that's aired on health sharing, which is one way that we have a movement going toward that. But sticking with the uh, concept of healthcare policy, what can our listeners do to help? I mean, so many people feel helpless, they don't, can't make a difference. Can they make a difference? And if so, how can they make a difference? Absolutely. Let me, let me say a couple of things. First of all, this is political. Now, people, I didn't used to be political. We're all political. In fact, the church, Catholic Social Teachings, calls us to political action. 
okay? But we're not all going to meet our representatives. We're not all going to Washington or the state legislature. Every single person listening to this interview can go to hla.org, sign up for their email blasts. It's directly from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and every single important political topic related to healthcare, you will be alerted, and with the push of about three buttons, and listen, I don't go on computers and do a lot of techie things, but every single alert I get from them, I go on and push two or three buttons, and both of my senators and representatives are notified, and you can, you can add your own information depending on how much you want to, but that would be a very significant step because right now, shockingly, roughly 1% of American Catholics are responding to that very powerful tool that could make a political difference. Second thing is, and I want for, you before you go on, that is a tool of the U.S. Catholic bishops conference. And if HLA doesn't get you there, it stands for humanlifeaction.org. And once you fill in your information, your email address, you'll get a link every time. You click the email, you click a button, and that just sent a letter to two senators and a congressman. The other thing for those who do share our understanding and do want to get back to individual ownership, you're going to have to educate yourselves. Um, look, we have to educate ourselves in, in many different fashions, but you're going to have to get a little more savvy about this because, you know, the, it's very tempting to think, well, just let the government take control of this. You know, they'll, they'll pay the bills, they'll de per deliver the care. I think everybody's experience with the Affordable Care Act makes them recognize that's not correct. But a lot of people out there just are not yet well educated. If you will go to Health Care Reform 2018, dot org that's the the service that i utilize one of the services that i utilize to keep up to date on what's going on today that's where the healthcare choices proposals are listed um, lots of information on that will will refer you to other areas but even if you just kept abreast of the current status of the politics of healthcare reform in washington at that uh, website, you'll educate yourself. Why is that important? Because you need to know how to interact with others. You need to know if you have an opportunity to meet a representative or you go to a, a community uh, meeting where they're, they're presenting. You, you do need to be educated with this, okay? And, and that would be very helpful. Well, and I, I love the idea of trying to get our patients involved. I mean, many times, just even in office visits, we recognize that these are major problems, and, and the temptation, I think, is to, to stay at home and curse the darkness because D.C. is so dysfunctional. There's, there's no way that we can help from a little town in Indiana or even down in Dallas, Texas. But the truth of the matter is, is this is a, a patient's rights issue. And I, I think now with the current administration, we're starting to get some, some respect and some help even in HHS, isn't that right? Absolutely, well, I just told you, we were invited to the White House. And, and, and I'm not, you know, don't misunderstand me. I mean, this is not all political. There are a couple of things that, that, that I wanna emphasize here in terms of going back to what can people do, okay? Um, particularly with this audience. The first and foremost thing we need to do is pray. We, we have to pray. We were on the cusp of having possibly, you said there was any, is there any possibility or hope of drawback right now? There's always hope in Jesus Christ. But had we had another administration that would have supported the Affordable Care Act, I believe the end game here, and it would have been implemented during this four-year period, the end game was a single payer. And it, it will take us generations to recover from that. And, and I'm going to make a very strong statement here, but I believe it's true. Um, again, not impugning anybody's intentions, but the culture of death would have been imposed in that single-payer system. So we have to pray. Now, the other thing that I hear every time I go to Washington, in terms of you know not being uh, having any benefit or effect for doing anything, even responding to these NCHLA alerts, they dispelled that myth from my mind. They said the two most important things you can do when you go home, after I would meet with national you know, senators and representatives, number one, educate, educate, educate. Number two, if there isn't grassroots movement to force this upon us, it will never be acted upon. In other words, Washington, D.C. will listen more to you, our listeners, than to us physicians. 
So re realize you have power, we don't. We have about a minute and a half left. Steve, I know that you and your committee are working on a project to help patients be aware of authentic Catholic clinics. Could you briefly introduce that idea? Yes, we're very actively. I'd say it's one of our, conscience protection and religious liberty is, is, our, is a very high priority, but the medical clinics are the second most uh, important priority for us because we have probably two dozen, and there are others out there we're not even aware of, two dozen clinics in this country. I consider them seeds, seeds of the new, um, you know, the new springtime in healthcare for the Catholic Church. These small seeds uh, are out there. They're family clinics, women's health clinics. They're practicing in conformity with the ERDs. We're acting as an umbrella organization to bring them together and network them. We want to see these sprouting up like seeds all over the country. And if you'll pray, and if you'll educate yourselves, and if you'll respond to the HLA alerts, I believe this is going to happen, well, possibly even in my lifetime, although I'm getting up there. In the last 20 seconds, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Just thank you for remaining faithful. Um, this, this is all about our love of God, our love for the church, our love for one another. Fundamentally, what are we called to? We're called to love God and to love one another. I just feel so privileged uh, you know, to be in the position that I'm in and help even a little bit. But I want to encourage you, every single one of us has something to give to this movement and healthcare is where everything is happening. So please take this seriously. Pray, respond to the alerts, and if you have any concerns or questions, please feel free to contact us at the CMA. Dr. Steve White, thank you so much for being part of Dr. Doctor today. We'll be back with our final segment after the break. This is Dr. Doctor coming back to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio and Tom. Everybody is wondering the answer to the trivia question with all the big medical words. Tell us what we need to know. So what do the staff of Moses with the bronze serpent, the staff of Esculapius, and the Caduceus have in common? Well, they are all used by different medical organizations as a supposed symbol of the medical profession. Hmm. And so the next part is, can you name a national organization that uses each of them on its logo? Let's go backwards. The caduceus is what I wore on my lapel for eight years. Now, what does that look like? The caduceus has a rod in the center with two snakes intertwined around it symmetrically, and then at the top, a wing coming off of each side. Okay, so that's the symmetric one that is that probably the most standard one people would think of i don't know if it's standard but it is probably the one that people would think of it was actually instituted as the symbol for the u.s army medical corps way back in 1902 and there's even evidence it was used on some orderlies shirts back in the civil war in the united states wow well why wouldn't everybody use that if if they do well it was actually a mistake because this is actually the rod or staff of Hermes, the, the Greek god. And it was associated with heralds in general, H-E-R-A-L-D-S. And Hermes was kind of the messenger in Greek mythology, otherwise known as Mercury in Roman or Latin mythology. So it would be a symbol for merchants, shepherds, gamblers, liars, and thieves. Now, some people might consider doctors those things, and if so, <laughs> then it probably is a, uh, an appropriate symbol. And in fact, because it was so commonly on medical imagery, the Catholic Medical Association, up until four years ago, had it on our logo. But you said it was a mistake. Why, why was that such a mistake? Because it never had any relationship, even in ancient times, to anything medical. Okay, so we didn't adopt the merchant logo. There was something else they were shooting for, right? Right, which is probably the staff of Escalapius. But the point I want to make, first of all, when it was on the Catholic Medical Association logo, I came across a statue of a satanic cult, and on the chest of this statue was a caduceus. And I sent that to the other board members of the National Catholic Medical Association, and within weeks we had changed our logo. Man, that's incredible. So what, what's the relationship there? Not sure. Uh, when I looked at this statue and then what people who 
had it built said about it, they wanted to show <laughs> show people that Satan worshipers had the same concerns that normal people do with things like commerce and buying and selling. Oh my goodness. But whatever it was, once I sent that picture out to other board members, we changed it. And we changed it to the first option I listed, to the staff of Moses. But first, what people are usually thinking of is the staff of Escalapius. That is a rod with one snake around it. Okay. And if you look, the organization that has that, I mean, there are a number of state medical organizations, but the American Medical Association, the AMA, you go to their website, you will see a staff of Escalapius. And Escalapius was a, uh, in Greek mythology, was a god of healing. And at the various Escalapions, places where people would go to be healed, they had non-poisonous snakes roaming the floors in these places as a symbol of health. Oh, my word. Yes, I don't think I would check into one of those. I know my wife wouldn't. Snakes do not have that same connotation that they used to have. Apparently not. (laughs) And then the final one, the staff of Moses with the bronze serpent. You'll remember that uh, in the book of Numbers, it talks about a time during the Exodus when the people were grumbling against Moses and a bunch of seraph serpents were sent to bite them and they they died. And then the people begged Moses, oh, we we didn't really mean this. Uh, Please pray that we not be killed. And so God said, take your staff and put a bronze serpent on it. When the people look on it, they shall live. So that is very similar to the staff of Asclepius and actually predates it. Really? Yes. So there may be a relationship here. But nevertheless, that is what we now use in the Catholic Medical Association on our logo, surmounted on a Maltese cross. In the background, there's the staff of Moses in front of it. And actually, earlier this year, I was in front of the largest staff of Moses in the world. Oh, wow. Okay. so It's like 90 feet tall. Where where was that? It's where Moses made the original one, oh. on Mount Nebo in Jordan. Right before crossing over into the promised land of Israel, you're on the eastern side of the Jordan River in the country of Jordan. Man, that is incredible. So now you know the difference and that either the staff of Escalapius or the staff of Moses with the, the bronze serpent are appropriate symbols for the medical profession, but the staff of Hermes or Mercury, even though it's been used as one, really had no history of having anything to do with medicine until the U.S. Army started using it 2,000 years after it was initially created. See, so everybody learned something new today. If if you do see that caduceus, you're going to know the history behind it now and the difference with the staff of Moses. So we have about four minutes left to discuss something that's of interest to Andrew. Yes, I, I wanted to go back to the navigating healthcare, the healthcare system topic, and just do a brief one today on something called EOBs, explanation of benefit forms. Have have you heard of those before, Tom? Oh my gosh, I receive them in the mail all the time, just like our listeners probably do. You know, it was something when going through healthcare as a patient, you run into so many different things than when you do as a doctor. And so I was surprised to get a bill that said it wasn't a bill from the people <laughs> who wanted my money. And I wanted to pay them, but I couldn't pay them yet because it wasn't a bill. And so just to draw a little bit of clarity there, if we can, usually when people undergo medical treatment and they're rendered care, you're gonna, and they have traditional health insurance, they're going to get two things regarding that appointment or that care. One will be a bill from the doctor or hospital or anesthesiologist or all of the above, depending on their relationship. And that will probably come way later than you expect it. I have seen people get bills from hospitals nine months, a year after something happens. You thought you already paid this. You forgot. You already paid taxes, you know. And so it's it's not on your mind. That's your real bill. The hospitals are getting a lot better about trying to incorporate payment into the hospital stay and the f- close follow-up, but you're going to get something else very shortly after the hospital stay called the explanation of benefits. And this is a letter from your insurance company that goes through what the hospital or the physician charged, what the insurance covers, how much they cover, and how much they don't cover. And frequently there'll be something that you'll see on there called a contractual adjustment. People with health insurance, you know, one of the the things that it started as was basically that 
when you were part of this club, you were in this insurance club, you got a better deal than Joe Schmo, who was just paying out of pocket. Things have changed a little bit now, but that is a, a negotiated rate. Since you're in the club, the Blue Cross Club or whatever club you're in, you get a special deal compared to people who pay cash. What that has transitioned to is that hospitals charge astronomical amounts of money for things that are much cheaper because they know that the insurance company is going to literally pay them a fraction, you know, depending on the procedure or the test. It might be something on the order of 10 to 20 percent of what they charge. They mark things up double, quadruple, 90 percent higher than what it actually costs. And so if if you get a charge for $1,000, there might be a contractual adjustment down to a hundred and some dollars. That is what the hospital is allowed to receive for doing that service. And in that contractual adjustment, that hundred and some dollars, there's going to be a portion that the insurance company covers, that's the covered amount, and then there's going to be an, a portion that drops to the patient. And depending on your insurance uh, plan, if you have not met your deductible, you might have to cover most of that hundred and something dollars. It might be something that's totally covered, like wellness visits frequently are, or vaccinations, and then you'll have to pay zero. Or frequently there's a co-payment where it might be a hundred and something dollars and you'll have to pay a percentage of it. And so it's a confusing thing, but that gives you the ability to plan. You know it's not the real bill, the real one's coming later, but you'll at least know how to plan for when that bill comes. So hopefully over time we can go through little nuances of the medical system like that and hopefully learn something each time. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you, listeners, for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you recorded live from the studios of Redeemer Radio. For more information on the CMA, find us on our website, cathmed.org, C-A-T-H-M-E-D.org. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, signing off until next time. Remember, your medical decisions may have profound consequences, so please choose wisely and choose Catholic. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor or in the Redeemer Radio app.